National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. If you'll recall, back in January, we had Northfield resident and KYMN climate show host Bruce Morlin on as our guest. Bruce spent a career in the U.S. Air Force dealing with nuclear weapons. At that time, I promised we'd hold a series of shows this year discussing nuclear deterrence, nuclear strategy, and nuclear weapons. Our guest today is Mark Bell, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Professor Bell's research examines issues relating to nuclear weapons and proliferation, international relations theory, and U.S. and British foreign policy. His first book, Nuclear Reactions, How Nuclear Armed States Behave, examines how states change their foreign policies when they acquire nuclear weapons and is published with Cornell University Press as part of the Cornell Studies and Security Affairs series. Other work has been published or is forthcoming in numerous academic journals, and some of Professor Bell's work has been funded by the Stanton Foundation, the U.S. Air Force Academy, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, the Smith-Richardson Foundation, the Charles Koch Foundation, and the Tobin Project, among others. Mark Bell holds a doctorate in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he was a Frank Knox Memorial Fellow, and a Bachelor of Arts in Politics, Philosophy, and Economics from St. Anne's College at Oxford University. Professor Mark Bell, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And now we know that you are also from the U.K. originally. Uh, it's kind of hard yeah. to hide that accent. Yeah. <laughs> So we have a lot to discuss today. I'm very excited about uh, having you on the show. Uh, you are sort of uh, well-known in, in uh, political science circles here in Minnesota as an expert on, on nuclear weapons. Uh, so let's uh, let's get started. You're, let's begin with the topic on your first book, Nuclear Reactions, How Nuclear Armed States Behave. How do nations change their foreign policy once they acquire nuclear weapons? And, and I know India, Pakistan, North Korea all pop into my head as relatively recent uh, members of uh, the nuclear club. Uh, South Africa is kind of an interesting outlier in that. Uh, so what does your research tell us? Yeah, so so the book sort of um, uh, makes two kind of big arguments. So the, the first is that, you know, we often think that, that nuclear weapons are basically kind of good for deterrence, right? They're good for deterring other countries uh, from attacking you with nuclear weapons. Maybe they're also good for deterring uh, countries uh, from attacking you with non-nuclear weapons, with conventional military forces. Uh, but they're sort of not good for much else, right? They don't really play a role in, in facilitating uh, kind of other foreign policy goals uh, that states have. Mm-hmm. And my argument in the book is that that's kind of wrong, right? That nuclear weapons actually um, are much more broadly useful within countries' foreign policies, that they can facilitate uh, a pretty wide range of foreign policy behaviors. Um, and we therefore see countries changing their foreign policies in quite significant ways when they get nuclear weapons. So the second, so that's sort of the first big argument: that nuclear weapons are more broadly useful um, than we sometimes think. And the second is that the ways in which countries change their foreign policies um, differ in lots of ways, right? So not all states use nuclear weapons, for example, to 
uh, facilitate kind of conventional military aggression, which is maybe the way that Pakistan sort of thinks about its the utility of its nuclear weapons. It's kind of the way that South Africa thought about its nuclear weapons as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, other states try to use nuclear weapons uh, more to kind of hold on to what they have, right, to stand firmer in defense of uh, the status quo. That would be the case for the UK, for example. Um, and other countries use nuclear weapons to really expand uh, their interests in international politics. And this would be uh, for example, the United States, right, which acquires nuclear weapons at the end of World War II and uses them essentially to sort of buttress um, a much more expansive position in the world um, than it had ever considered before in its history and more than it would have been able to do uh, with purely conventional uh, military capabilities. So there's sort of this variety that we see in the historical record um, and the book uh, tries to sort of get a handle on on that variety to try to explain that variety. Okay. Uh, so we we mentioned South Africa. Uh, tell us a little bit about South Africa and how having nuclear weapons sort of changed their foreign policy. Yeah, so South Africa is sort of a it's kind of a weird case that nuclear nuclear scholars kind of study a lot. Um, partly because they're the only country to have gotten rid of nuclear weapons um, in the early 1990s. Uh, partly because they acquired nuclear weapons in secret, right? The apartheid regime, uh, this sort of pariah state. Although I had still, you know, somewhat friendly relations with the United States and various other states, but um, you know, on the receiving end of a lot of international condemnation for for its domestic political institutions and its apartheid uh, policies, um, acquires nuclear weapons sort of in the midst of the Cold War, and in that period, the South Africans are are, are most afraid that uh, the sort of war that's going on in Angola to their north, mm. uh, there are lots of Cuban forces there. Um, and there are lots of Soviet um, kind of military trainers, military equipment and so on. And the South Africans basically worry that they are in no position to defend themselves if the Soviet Union rapidly escalates its its engagement in Angola. Mm-hmm. And they have no faith that the United States is going to come to their aid. So what they basically see is that, well, maybe nuclear weapons, if we have them and we kind of keep them secret, what we can do then is if things get bad, if the Soviets start to escalate their involvement, if you know more Cuban forces come in, if it looks like they're planning to actually invade um, uh, Namibia, which South Africa was at that point controlling as a, as a kind of colonial territory, mm-hmm. we'll basically go to the United States and we'll say, hey, you guys don't like it when countries acquire nuclear weapons. We're really concerned. We're going to test our nuclear weapon and sort of come out as a nuclear armed power. So you'd better support us and you'd better send us some equipment. You'd better send us some some military material. And then we'll then we'll be OK. We'll be able to kind of keep the bomb in the basement, so to speak. And so that's kind of the, the threat they have in mind. That's kind of how they envisage using nuclear weapons. Uh, but once they have that capability, what they sort of realize is that actually this then allows them to push a little harder, to behave a little more aggressively in Angola, uh, pre- precisely because they have this sort of additional fallback option that mm-hmm. they can threaten. Uh, they can sort of blackmail the United States, or at least that's the hope, to, to blackmail the United States into supporting them by threatening to um, become a, a sort of overt nuclear power. So from from that case study, uh, w- would we say that in some cases uh, acquiring nuclear weapons are, allows countries to be a little more aggressive in their foreign policy? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, I think that's, um, you know, that's the case in, in South Africa. I mean, frankly, it's the case in, in the United States at the end of World War II, right? Using sure. nuclear weapons against against Japan. 
Um, I think it's the case um, in, in the case of Pakistan. Um, you've seen Pakistan use nuclear weapons sort of as a shield behind which to engage in, in acts of aggression um, against India, um, both sort of um, conventional military uh, actions or sort of sub-conventional military actions, maybe, mm-hmm. um, as well as um, uh, sort of um, supporting various terrorist groups and, and insurgent organizations and so on that then conduct um, attacks within India. And the, and the idea is that Pakistan's nuclear weapons will then inhibit India from retaliating um, in the way that India otherwise would be able to, right? And, and in the way that India did uh, retaliate um, prior to, to both sides acquiring nuclear weapons in you know, the 1965 war or in other wars that they right. fought. Right, right. So, so we know that the Kashmiri uh, separatist groups, the militant groups, uh, are strongly supported by the Pakistani government, specifically ISI, but that nuclear umbrella that the Pakistanis have now does deter the Indians to a certain extent. Uh, there have yeah. been some... Uh, some interesting crises that have happened that uh, pushed those two countries to the brink. Uh, the most recent one that I can think of is the uh, <clears throat> the terrorist attack in Mumbai, uh, the hotel attack. Shortly thereafter, Indian forces massed on the border with Pakistan, and I think it was a visit from the uh, former UK Prime Minister that uh, put that genie back in the bottle before they started a massive invasion of, uh, of Pakistan. But that might have been a trigger uh, for an actual nuclear exchange between those two countries. Yeah, and I mean, I think in in in, in the pre-nuclear era, that those kind of events would probably have led to war between India and Pakistan. Certainly, and, and yeah. not dissimilar things did lead to wars between India and Pakistan. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, nuclear weapons, I think, uh, force um, India to um, uh, to be somewhat more cautious in its retaliatory options. Um, and you saw, you know, even the war they fought in 1999, the, the Kargil War, after both sides had, had had sort of tested nuclear weapons come out as sort of overt nuclear states, um, India was very careful not to conduct the kind of military operations that it had conducted in, in previous wars with, with Pakistan. Um, and I think that was that was the restraining effect of nuclear weapons. Um, now, India is obviously doesn't really like the fact that it has to be restrained in that way, right? And I think it's trying to sort of figure out ways in which it can kind of get around um, uh, the constraints that, that Pakistani nuclear weapons pose on it. But but that's a pretty difficult problem to solve. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, Pakistan has the ability to uh, hold Indian cities at, at risk um, mm-hmm. of nuclear use, and that that. That clarifies the mind if you're an if you're yeah. an Indian prime minister or an Indian sort of defense. It, it, indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, so wh- why don't we uh, why don't we cover very briefly? Uh, we you mentioned South Africa gave up their nuclear weapons in the early nineties uh, as we we're transitioning away from the apartheid government. Which nations today are currently part of uh, the nuclear club? In other words, which nations currently have or or we suspect them of having uh, nuclear weapons? Yeah, so so the U.S. was was first to acquire, obviously, followed by um, Soviet Union in in the late 1940s. Uh, Britain acquires nuclear weapons in the 1950s, um, and then in the 1960s, uh, France, China, and Israel uh, all acquire nuclear weapons. Um, and then South Africa, India, Pakistan. Uh, later in the Cold War, then South Africa gives up its nuclear weapons in the early 1990s, as we said, um, and then North Korea acquires nuclear weapons uh, today and, and has nuclear weapons today. Uh, so that puts us at, at nine nuclear weapon states today. Okay, and and, and to be clear, you did you did not mention Iran. So, 
where where is Iran and their ability to do you know to break out and uh, establish a nuclear weapon uh, capability? Yeah, so Iran is still some distance away. Um, I mean, depending on how you sort of calculate the the, the breakout time, right? Uh, uh, so the the Iran nuclear deal that uh, the Obama administration signed. Um, and involved Iran shipping a lot of its um, enriched uranium um, out of the country. Now, that enriched uranium was not enriched to what we call weapons-grade uranium, so you couldn't have taken that and just put it into a nuclear weapon. It would have needed to be enriched quite a lot further. But still, it was enriched uranium. It's, um, it's, if you enriched it further, it would, you could use it in a bomb. Right. Uh, so as part of that deal, they shipped a lot of that out of the country, and that took... Uh, what we call their breakout time, which is sort of if they decided today they wanted to get a nuclear weapon as quickly as possible, how long would it take them to enrich um, the uranium they have up to enough to make one nuclear weapon? Um, uh, at the point at which the, the JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal was signed, Iran's breakout time uh, was, was sort of a few months. Um, people debated a little bit, but three, five, six months, something like that. Once they signed the JCPOA, shipped out most of their highly most of their enriched uranium, um, that went up to, to over a year. Um, then, obviously, the, the Trump administration in 2018 withdrew from uh, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, put sanctions uh, back on Iran. Iran sort of unsurprisingly said, well, if we're not getting the <laughs> sanctions relief, we're not going to abide by the constraints either. Yeah. Uh, so they then started re-enriching um, uh, uranium more. Um, and so that started bringing the, the breakout time down again, uh, such that at the end of the Trump administration, and is still the case today, uh, Iran's breakout time is back down to being uh, a few months. Okay. Um, and obviously, we're, we're sort of seeing these kind of negotiations between uh, the Iranian regime and, and the Biden administration as to whether uh, they will try to sort of revive the, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, but at the moment, we're sort of Back in the world we were before the Iran nuclear deal, where where Iran is, if it made a decision uh, today, could have enough um, highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon within within a few months if it if it wanted to. Okay, uh, we'll continue on with a discussion on the arsenals that are out there in the nine uh, nuclear weapons. But I, I want to remind our audience that uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Mark Bell from the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing nuclear deterrence and nuclear strategy. Uh, so, Mark, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the arsenals that are contained in these nine different countries that, that have nuclear weapons? Uh, maybe a little bit about what kind of weapons they have, how would they would deliver them uh, should they choose to use them. Maybe start with the least sophisticated and move up to the, to the most sophisticated. Yeah, so I mean, what you consider to be the least sophisticated is sort of a matter of a bit of an opinion. I'll sort of talk a little bit about how how nuclear arsenals kind of vary um, in general. I mean, I think, um, you know, and this is a sort of a bit of a simplification, but it can kind of get us started. So there's sort of three questions that I kind of generally ask when, when sort of thinking about the kinds of nuclear arsenals that states have and the kind of nuclear strategies they have. Uh, so the first is, what are they trying to deter? Mm -hmm. Are they only trying to deter a nuclear attack on them? Are they trying to deter a full-on invasion? Are they trying to deter attacks on their allies? Um, what your answer to that question is has pretty important implications for what kind of nuclear weapons you might want. Um, so the second question is, 
is when would you choose to use nuclear weapons? Is your arsenal sort of optimized for using nuclear weapons first in a conflict, or are you comfortable going second? I.e., do you ju- are you okay with just being able to retaliate um, after um, someone else uses nuclear weapons against you? Um, and third, are you planning on attacking your adversary's cities? And we call that counter-value targeting. Um, or do you want to ha- try to have the ability to go after your your adversaries' nuclear weapons themselves, right? mm-hmm. that counter-force targeting. Um, and so different answers to those three questions suggest very different types of nuclear arsenals um, and, and very different kind of types of systems you want to have to, to deliver them. Right? And these questions are connected to each other. Right? If you, it's easier to do counter-force, for example, if you're going first in, in a nuclear exchange. Um, but regardless, if you answer those questions, it sort of tells you a bit about the kind of systems that you would expect a country to have. Okay. Um, so, for example, you know, um, India and China um, have historically have had pretty sort of relaxed nuclear postures, right? Their, their arsenals are sort of optimized for retaliation rather than going first. Um, and, and, and on that point, very quickly, yeah. would you say that that developed out of the Chinese invasion of India in 62? Is that kind of where that that uh, strategy developed, sort of a retaliatory p- p- posture? Um, so, so certainly the, 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 the China-India war was sort of the key event that, that motivated India moving towards weaponizing it. I mean, they'd done quite a lot of sort of nuclear research prior to that point, but that was really the sort of a, a, a turning point in their nuclear program in, in kind of confirming that they wanted nuclear uh, uh, weapons. Um, I think for China... It was less that war and more um, uh, sort of what they perceived to have been nuclear threats um, that came from the, the United States during the Korean War and, and various other crises um, in the 1950s. That really, they then sort of wanted nuclear weapons um, essentially to kind of, um, so that they wouldn't feel that kind of level of nuclear kind of coercion from the United States. But if the goal is just to resist kind of coercion, you don't necessarily need to be able to threaten to go first. You just need to be able to assure that you can retaliate even if you get attacked. And so I think that's the kind of origins of, of, of China's um, um, uh, somewhat relaxed um, uh, nuclear posture. Right? And, and also, you know, the fact that both China and India have huge territories, they're not hugely worried about being invaded, uh, you know, having their kind of core territory invaded in, in a significant way. And so, um, you know, they can therefore afford to have a somewhat more relaxed nuclear posture. They're not like, you know, North Korea, where, you know, if they got invaded, they could be overrun in sort of a day or two. Um, and therefore, you really need to have a kind of a more itchy trigger finger, right? You need to be able to threaten to, to use your nuclear weapons really quickly. Uh, China and India have, have had, you know, a more relaxed posture. Uh, their weapons are are on a lower level of alert. They prioritize systems that that don't have great accuracy, right? That that can be used to destroy cities, but aren't going to play a sort of major role in in a sort of war, right? In terms of taking out other enemy kind of capability, military capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are kind of the systems that that China and India have historically had, and they sort of suggest a somewhat more relaxed uh, nuclear posture. And, and China, if I recall, has a no first use policy. I, I mean, is that to be believed? <laughs> yeah. So China and India both have historically um, had a um, 
have made this declaration that they wouldn't go first. Um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, there's always a question, right, about whether these kind of declar any sort of declaration, right, and, and this applies to any country's mm -hmm. declaratory policy, whether, you know, when the rubber really hits the road, right, are things that you have said in the past really going to constrain you? Um, from, you know, doing what you think is necessary to ensure the survival of your country, right? And I think there's reasonable skepticism, therefore, about uh, both China and India's no-first-use policies. Um, on the other hand, what I would say is that both China and India's nuclear arsenals have historically been arranged and, um, uh, and sort of built in a way that lends credibility to that claim, right? They have systems that are optimized for um, retaliation um, uh, that don't indicate that they have nuclear weapons on sort of a hair trigger alert. Um, and therefore that, you know, I think does give a certain amount more credibility to those kind of statements. Certainly it, it has more credibility in my eyes than if the United States would have made a similar claim, given that the United States has had weapon systems that are much more sort of optimized for nuclear first use, right, and that prioritize uh, sort of going first in, in various ways. Therefore, if the United States were to make that claim, it would sort of be an obvious tension with the capabilities it actually has. Mm -hmm. uh, with India and China, at least historically, the, the claim sort of lines up um, uh, with the capabilities that they have and therefore has has at least somewhat more credibility, I think. But yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right to kind of question it and, and to say, well, you know, if you ever ended up in a, in a really intense situation, you know, would that kind of, previous verbal commitment or written commitment in some cases that, that these countries have made really, you know, count for that much. And I, I think that's an open question and we, we just don't know, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's continue on some of the other countries. Uh, North Korea is, is designed mostly as, uh, I mean, they have ballistic missiles, but we haven't really determined, I don't think yet, that they can deliver a nuclear weapon at the end of a ballistic missile trajectory. Is that true or, or are the... Uh, I would view them as having that capability. I mean, okay. I think the... Yeah, and I think the U.S. government believes that they have that capability. At least that's my read of it. I mean, the the the, the missile... So, the, so they've certainly demonstrated, right, high-yield nuclear weapons, nuclear yep. weapons that could destroy a, a, any U.S. city. And they've developed... They've um, demonstrated missiles that can reach any city in the United States. Yep. So the question then is, can they put those two capabilities together, right? Can you miniaturize the nuclear weapon sufficiently that it can go on the end of one of those warheads? Um, the thing is, is that the warheads, that the missiles that they have tested and demonstrated are so big and so powerful that you really don't have to do very much miniaturization. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, the, compared to the, the kind of technological barriers that they've already gone through uh miniaturizing is not a difficult issue really um compared to the things they've already accomplished so i think if if i was a u.s planner i would um um i think it would be a very dangerous game to think that north korea does not have that capability i would assume that they do have that capability and i think that's how the u.s is sort of is is thinking about it at the moment which would uh, explain the significant increase in ground-based uh, uh missile interceptors at fort Greeley <laughs> in alaska yeah i mean if you hope that you hope that your missile defenses work maybe i mean that you know the, the sort of sad i mean missile defense systems are i mean maybe they 
you know, you can be kind of optimistic about it. I mean, the, the, the problem, you know, the United States has spent vast sums of money trying to make missile defense work. And, and, mm-hmm. the, and the basic problem is that just that it's a very difficult technological problem to solve. I mean, it is, um, you know, to describe it as firing a bullet out of the air with, an, you know, with another bullet actually underestimates the technical difficulties <laughs> associated with this. I mean, this yeah. is just a very difficult thing to do. And it's not surprising um you know, that, that when these systems have been tested, they just don't do that good a job. I mean, if you know exactly the time that a missile is being sent, you know exactly um, the location it's being sent from, you know exactly where it's aimed for, then maybe you have a shot at, at shooting it out of the air. But you're obviously not going to know that in any realistic scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, there are various things that... Um, uh, the country attacking you can do in terms of decoys and other things that that make it much harder to um, um, to guarantee that you know you're going to hit all of these. So you know, you know, if North Korea were to fire one missile, maybe you have a shot at, mm. at, at, at hitting it out of the air. But you know, at, at, once you once you have more than a few, I would. I would not put a great deal of faith in, in U.S. missile defense. To, yeah, to- I, I would say that the Missile Defense Agency and, and the strategy that the U.S. military has been employing uh, has been to deal with these sort of, uh, you know, kind of a quote-unquote rogue nation uh, threat uh, like North Korea, uh, like maybe Iran in the future, if, if that's a, a reality. Uh, not, yeah, not no, that's, that's cer- absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, certainly not against a, a fully armed country. Uh, somewhat co-equal nuclear uh, power, right? Yeah. All I'd say is that even North Korea, you know, probably has the capacity to put 10, 15 missiles on on a path to the United States. And I think at that point, um, it's hard for me at least to imagine that the U.S. missile defense would take out all of them. Right, Uh, yeah. And it only takes one or two, and and suddenly two of your biggest cities are are in, you know, smoldering ruins. Right. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, uh, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Mark Bell from the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing nuclear deterrence and nuclear strategy. Uh, Mark, let's move over to to nuclear treaties. We've been talking about uh, nuclear weapons, uh, the countries that have them, uh, the delivery capabilities a little bit. Uh, So let's move to the nuclear treaties. What what nuclear treaties exist today that would support nuclear disarmament around the world? Yeah, so so the biggest and, and most important nuclear treaty that, that that has disarmament as a goal is is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which um, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union sort of created uh, kind of together uh, during the Cold War. It's sort of an, an unusual episode of cooperation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, um, and then gradually kind of convinced other countries to sign up to. So today, all all countries are members of that treaty except um, uh, Israel, India. Uh, Pakistan and North Korea, which are the, the, the nuclear weapon states that aren't legally recognized in the treaty. Um, and, and the treaty is sort of a, this kind of grand bargain, right? The nuclear weapon states, the five nuclear weapon states that are sort of um, um, authorized in the treaty to possess nuclear weapons in some sense, um, they agree to, to work in good faith towards uh, nuclear disarmament. They agree to help the non-nuclear weapon states um, obtain the benefits of, of, of nuclear energy. And then the non-nuclear weapon states, to all the other countries, agree not to acquire nuclear weapons. Um, and so that's sort of the basic structure of this treaty. It's sort of this, this bargain between uh, states that have nuclear weapons and states that, states that don't. So <clears throat> the two biggest, uh, biggest armed countries in the world are the U.S. And, and Russia right now, obviously. 
What's the status of the nuclear weapons reduction treaties uh, currently in force uh, between the U.S. and Russia? Yeah, so we've just seen the um, the Biden administration come in and, and extend uh, the New START treaty, which was um, initially negotiated by the Obama administration, ratified by the Senate, and that itself was sort of um, a, a sort of follow-on to various arms control treaties uh, that were signed during the Cold War. Um, so that places um, limits on the number of deployed weapons delivery systems that, that each side has. Uh, it facilitates inspections by both sides, so it sort of increases transparency about the capabilities that both sides have. Um, and so I think, you know, the extension of that treaty for, for an additional five years sort of makes sense, is a good thing, um, helps both sides have have some degree of, of additional transparency. So that's sort of the main um, uh, kind of arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia that, that sort of still exists. And roughly, <clears throat> roughly how many warheads uh, does the U.S. and Russia currently possess each right now? Uh, so they possess a lot more, but but in terms of deployed systems, which is what um, the the treaty uh, constrains, I think it's fifteen hundred or something, something like that, uh, that that are sort of allowed under the treaty. To- total number of weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, warheads, h- how many do we have on each side between the U.S. and Russia, roughly? Oh, I mean, a lot more, thousands and thousands. <laughs> like, um, it's like yeah. 4,500 each or something, close to, close to that number, is that about right, or is it higher? Uh, I think it, I mean, I think part of it sort of, I'm not, I don't actually know off the top of my head the, the latest numbers. I mean, I think it, it depends a little bit on sort of what you count, how you count various things that are sort of sitting in different places sure, um, sure. Um, and in different sort of states of disassembly. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that sounds sort of roughly roughly right. And, and for the other countries that are out there that are part of the nuclear club, uh, let me see if I have my numbers right. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong. I, I think uh, estimates were that China has about 300 warheads. Uh, yeah, that everyone else is sort of in the in the hundreds and then maybe low hundreds probably and um, and then... I mean, North Korea, we sort of have no idea, but we would, I think we guess sort of in the sort of 80 to 90 to 100 oh. sort of sort of range. Okay. Um, That's uh, actually a lot more <laughs> than I would have, uh, than the last number that I heard. I, maybe a little, I mean, you know, the assumption is that they've been building sure. um, nuclear, you know, I mean, they've tested these capabilities and maybe, maybe I'm a little on the high end, but um, um, certainly, you know, in the kind of dozens so so let's let's talk a little bit about North Korea and and their nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability. I had uh, Mark Canning on here uh, a number of weeks ago. He's sort of a, a Korean Peninsula specialist, mm-hmm. uh, retired Foreign Service officer in the State Department. Um, had a lot of dealings with uh, North Korean defectors. Clearly worked closely with the South Korean uh, government while he was uh, in Seoul. Uh, one of the things that that comes up all the time is. Uh, uh, in the discussions about uh, with North Korea about their nuclear weapons, when we talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, we mean North Korea gets rid of their <laughs> nuclear weapons. <laughs> but when yeah, North Korea they mean. <laughs> when North Korea talks about de- denuclearization, they mean any nuclear weapons on the peninsula must go, including anything that the U.S. might have in an inventory still sitting in South Korea. Uh, is that kind of well, your I mean, read they mean on more it? than that? Right? They also mean. I mean, they mean the sort of removal of the nuclear threat yeah. from the Korean Peninsula, which to them means U.S. nuclear weapons. Sure, anything um, sitting in so Guam or wherever else it might be. <laughs> yeah, this doesn't end until um, until the U.S. gives up its nuclear weapons alongside North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons, yeah. I think, from, from their perspective. So that probably won't change anytime soon, uh, that, that posture on the North Korean side. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what, I mean, the way I would view it is that the, you know, what the North Koreans agreed to in the sort of quote unquote agreement with, with, with Trump that they, that they signed, um, you know, they agreed to, um, I think, work to, you know, the language was something like work towards the denuclearization of, of the Korean Peninsula, right? Which is basically, you know, I would view that as basically the same as what the United States has committed to in the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is to work in good faith towards nuclear disarmament. And, and so, you know, I would view North Korean disarmament as, as being on roughly the same timeline as U.S. nuclear disarmament, sure. which, is, which is to say not any time soon. So let's let's move uh, to to North Korea's uh, uh, strong benefactor and neighbor to the north, uh, the People's Republic of China. Are there any nuclear weapons uh, reduction treaties that exist right now between the U.S. and the PRC? No, so there are no bilateral agreements of, of sort of the sort that exists between the United States and Russia. I mean, there are various treaties and agreements that exist that both the United States and China are signed up to, right? Whether that's the NPT, whether it's um, you know. Uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1540, which has to do with nuclear terrorism and various things related to that. So there are, there are all sorts of sort of agreements that both countries are signed up to, but there are no uh, kind of bilateral agreements that would aim to uh, bring sort of the numbers of nuclear weapons down between those two countries. So the Trump administration allowed the Intermediate Range uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty to lapse. Uh, and I th- and I, the strategy was that uh, the Trump administration wanted to push uh, Russia and China to come to the bargaining table to some sort of uh, uh, tripartite agreement uh, between our, our three countries for a nuclear reductions uh, uh, effort. Do you think that's a I mean, is that something China will ever come to the table to discuss, or, or are they not even going to move in that direction? Um, Based I think it's on pretty your unlikely. Rate. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the basic reason is that China, you know, and in some sense not unreasonably, you know, looks at the United States and says, well, the U.S. has five or six times as many nuclear weapons as we do, as, as China does, right, has far more potent accurate and, and frankly aggressively postured nuclear weapons than, than China does. And so China says, well, you're threatening us far more than we're threatening you. And so the Chinese position is, well, you know, why don't you, the United States and the Russians, bring down your nuclear weapons further? And when you get somewhat closer to what we have, right, come and talk to us then. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, yeah. and so until that point, I think, you know, the Chinese really aren't interested in in sort of agreements that would would reduce their numbers. And I think it was sort of a, uh, a deal, you know, the Trump administration sort of talked about it and, um, you know, sort of said they were, that was what they were kind of hoping to achieve. You know, I mean, this was never likely to happen. And I think it was sort of, um, uh, it, it didn't make much sense to me, at least, to kind of hold U.S.-Russia negotiations on a bilateral U.S.-Russia treaty, right, extending new strats, sort of hostage to try and get Chinese participation that was never never really plausible as far as I could tell. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'll tell you what, uh, Professor uh, Mark Bell, we, we are starting to slide in towards the, uh, the end of our time available. Uh, there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk to you today about, but maybe what we'll do, since this is a series of ongoing discussions about uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, is invite you on again uh, sometime later this year to discuss sort of advances in uh, new nuclear weapons capabilities, delivery systems, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, what does, what does strategic deterrence look like in the 21st century when you start bringing in hypersonics and uh, unmanned platforms and those kinds of things? Yeah, uh, so, sounds good. So I'd maybe, be happy to, happy to continue the conversation. That, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, so 
let's uh, let's shift into a couple of last questions. Um, we, we we hear about this term tactical nuclear weapons. <laughs> In your studies, uh, you know, what does that term mean? Uh, and because from my perspective, if you use a nuclear weapon, <laughs> even in a tactical sense, like on the battlefield, there are some rather serious strategic ramifications that happen immediately upon detonation. I mean, what, what does this tactical nuclear weapon mean to you? Yeah, and I think a lot of, I mean, I think that's exactly right, right? And, and so a lot of people, and, and that's part of the argument that often gets made, um, when arguing against investing money in these kind of systems, right? That basically, you know, we should be in the business of trying to um, sort of um, uh, make it harder to use nuclear weapons rather than lowering the threshold for nuclear use. And, and the idea with tactical nuclear weapons is that you would maybe use them in a in a manner that is more similar to the way that you would use conventional military capabilities, and you would use them to conduct missions that you could also use conventional military capabilities to try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, if you use start using nuclear weapons, a lot of people will say, well, pretty quickly, that is going to escalate just to an all out nuclear exchange. And then, you know, we're all we're all screwed. We're all dead. Um, and therefore, that's sort of the reason you shouldn't begin going down that path of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, but plenty of countries are going down that path. I mean, the United States has been down that path of, mm-hmm. you know, for a long period of time and has had, you know, plenty of low yield nuclear weapons, plenty of nuclear weapons that it could use for um, in a sort of tactical sense, right, for battlefield type uses. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are, you know, those systems exist. And so um, uh, the sort of big question is, well, how, how kind of destabilizing is that? And, and does it in fact make um, uh, nuclear use and escalation once you have, you know, once you're in that kind of crisis, uh, more likely, and, okay. you know, I mean, we don't know yet. I mean, we haven't had to run that that sort of experiment. We haven't seen them be used, uh, but that's sort of you know the big question. Well, maybe we can uh, work that into our discussion uh, the next time we have you on. Uh, so, what what are you working on right now in the way of research? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm starting a, a second book project that's sort of about or, or kind of the motivating question is is kind of why or trying to explain why U.S. nuclear thinking or U.S. nuclear strategy has kind of been so constant over time, right? We've seen a lot of, you know, changes in administrations, changes in the kind of politics of, of the domestic politics um, since the United States acquired nuclear weapons. We've seen huge shifts in the international environment, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the sort of start of the rise of rise of China. Um, but despite that, the United States nuclear strategy has actually remained remarkably kind of constant over that period of time and hasn't seen many shifts. So, so that's sort of the, the big question I'm trying to kind of get a handle on in, in this second uh, book project. So that's, sort of, that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. So when we get to you on next time, <clears throat> I'll also pin you down and, and make you defend your statement of either support or opposition to maintaining <clears throat> the nuclear triad. <laughs> okay, sounds <laughs> we'll, good. We'll talk about that next time. <laughs> Uh, so, folks, we've reached the end of our show today. Uh, our guest today was Professor Mark Bell from the University of Minnesota. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for joining us on uh, National Security This Week. My pleasure. It's good to be here. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a fantastic finished your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, 
a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Ninety-five point one. The one.